on in our series on the parables of Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. It's printed in your like little bulletin thing, but uh, I think maybe it's also in the passage behind me. I don't know. In tonight's passage, we're really going to circle around one issue, and that is identity. Uh, this is actually a theme that comes up uh, pretty often in our like popular culture. In thinking about identity, I... Uh, somewhat shamefully kept coming back to the premise of a certain movie that came out last year uh, as a Hallmark movie uh, called The Princess Switch. Uh, you may have heard of it. It has uh, Vanessa Hudgens as like the main character. Yeah, I, Maddie made me watch it. Uh, that's my excuse. Uh, no. It was on TV. I was like, oh, well, I guess we just got to watch this. Uh, but uh, essentially, uh, uh, this princess that's played by Vanessa Hudgens meets her doppelganger, who is a lowly baker, uh, and who's also, by the way, played by Vanessa Hudgens. And they get the bright idea to switch places because they look so much alike, this princess and this baker. They both long for an identity that is not their own. They both long for an identity that they don't possess. Uh, and they believe that if they ha- could have the other's identity, if they, be- they believe if, if only they could switch places they would uh, ditch their lives, uh, ditch their identities, and they'd feel at peace, and they'd find the joy that eludes them in their own lives. And I think this actually hits at something, like the reason that these movies pop up so much, for instance, uh, by the way, my generation, this version of that is the Lizzie McGuire movie. Uh, some of you guys are, my like, juniors and seniors are all like, yeah. Uh, my fresh, there's just like just a bit of a generation divide there. Um, it came out in 2003, so it's like actually just right at the... So anyways, uh, yeah, it's that long ago. Yeah, it's that long ago. Um, so uh, this movie, like this motif of like switching places with somebody who is uh, like a prince or a princess or somebody who's like important or famous is a motif that comes up a lot because I think deep down we all have this sense within us that it would be great to ditch our own lives that are riddled with uh, imperfections and difficulty, and disappointment, and deep within, uh, we think that maybe we're misplaced. Uh, we're longing for a better identity, something richer and fuller and deeper than we have right now. And uh, we just, we like to envision or like imagine ourselves meeting this pop star, or this princess, or this prince, and like trading places with him. Uh, and in our passage tonight, we're, we're going to be introduced to two people who uh, who are circling this question of identity one is clinging to his identity uh, and he doesn't even deserve it and then the other is uh, completely shirking her identity her reputation that she actually deserves for when she doesn't and ultimately we'll see how Jesus interacts with these two people as we seek to answer this question this is our question for tonight what is our identity what is our identity let's read the passage and find out uh, this is from Luke seven thirty six through 50 it's up behind me One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Uh, Him is Jesus, by the way. And uh, and behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, 
When the Pharisees who had invi- invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this, uh, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered it, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for this uh, time tonight where we can ask this question about our identity, to wonder what it means uh, to have an identity and what identity we are supposed to have. What is it? Um, What what are you offering us and and what do we currently have? Uh, I pray that you would help us to see that clearly tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so remember, the question we're asking is, what is our identity? Let's start by looking at verse 1, where our story starts. Look at it with me. Uh, Luke describes a scene in which Jesus is asked to come over to the home of a Pharisee, who we'll find out later is named Simon. The text says they were reclined at a table, and if you can picture it, essentially what would happen at a, at a dinner like this is everyone would sit on the floor, and they'd actually like, lay down on the floor. This is why they actually literally reclined at table, and they'd kind of prop up their bodies with one arm, and they would eat with the other. That's kind of normal. So that actually, if you had an aerial view of uh, the dinner that they were having that night, everybody, it would have looked a little bit like a star. Everybody's feet faced outwards, and all of them moving in towards the center, towards the table. And uh, in verses 37 through 38, we're told that a woman enters this scene, this, you know, star configuration, and she walks over to Jesus, and, uh, oh, yes, sorry, before I talk about that, uh, a woman walks in, and Luke identifies her as a woman of the city, woman of the city, a sinner. Uh, that is actually a not-so-veiled reference uh, to this woman being a prostitute of some sort. Uh, her reputation for, like, for doing this is actually so great that we find out that Simon is at least very aware of it uh, in verse 39, and he expects Jesus ought to know it as well. Uh, this woman of the city... She comes into Simon's house with an alabaster uh, jar full of ointment, a flask full of ointment. And alabaster is like a, it's just like a soft stone that like people used to keep perfumes in. And uh, she she begins to like wash Jesus' feet with her tears and then drying them with her hair and then putting the ointment on them. Now, uh, when I read this story every time, I'm struck by the idea that she literally washes Jesus' feet with her tears. I don't know about you guys. I've cried a few times in my life, but I don't know if I've ever cried so much that I literally could have 
wet someone's like feet with my tears, that there's enough literally liquid that's coming from my eyes that I could wet someone's, uh, someone's feet. And so there's one of two things that's happening here. Either one, she's crying so deeply that she, that she can get Jesus' whole feet wet and actually dry them with her hair, or she's simply ki- like kissing Jesus' still like dirty feet. They're like, yeah, drops on his feet, and then she's just kind of wiping her hair into the mud and grime that he's collected that day. Either one of those, uh, either way, this woman is completely disregarding like every social convention imaginable uh, in doing this. And she's causing quite a scene in the process. She's just so overjoyed in meeting Jesus and struck by the weight of her own sin that she's given up every pretense that she knows of. Uh, She's completely disregarded anything that someone might think at this point, uh, including touching a male in public uh, and including um, her being a very unclean person touching Jesus. Um, Just very, very, very many social conventions all just kind of thrown out the window here as she she, uh, wipes Jesus' feet with her hair and kisses them. And Simon concludes that this gesture that Jesus, like from this gesture that Jesus must not be a prophet, and, you know, here's the funny thing. This is not the first time someone has, has questioned Jesus's, like, status as being a, a voice or a mouthpiece of God, that he knows the mind of God. Uh, in fact, uh, despite raising a widow's son from life, uh, back to life, and several other healings happening in this same chapter, John the Baptist, right before the passage that we have here, is actually going to send a messenger while he's in jail and say, hey, are you the one, are you the Messiah, or are we supposed to wait for another? Uh, Jesus is constantly getting this indictment of like, are you really God? Are you really the one that we're supposed to be looking to? Uh, And of course, Simon is thinking that in his head, there's no way that this guy is really uh, meant to put the whole world to right. Uh, If he he really was God, if he really knew God this way, he wouldn't he wouldn't be hanging out with this person, let alone letting her uh, behave this way toward him. And interestingly, this very indictment, uh, you, you'll have to find the irony here. Uh, it's, it can't be lost on you. The very indictment that, it, that's against Jesus, that like, he doesn't, he's not able to read this woman's past, like able to read her mind or know who she is like, clairvoyantly, uh, the, like, that's the indictment that is being leveled against him in Simon's mind. And Jesus being able to read Simon's mind says, uh, you know, responds to him. Um, you'll look at that in, uh, I think it's verse, what is it? Verse 40. Yeah. In verse 40, Jesus demonstrates that he's completely capable and he answered Simon. Simon hasn't spoken. He's just thought in his head, like, well, you know, Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with this woman. And Jesus says, you know what, Simon? <laughs> I was just hearing your thoughts <laughs> and I'd like to respond to them. Uh, and so the very charge that Simon is leveling against Jesus has actually demonstrated that, like, yeah, he knows. Uh, and in fact, he knows what's going on in your head too, Simon. And uh, you can almost hear Jesus saying the words uh, of verse 40 out loud after receiving this criticism. He's been criticized and criticized. Are you really the one? Are you really the one? Are you really the one? Um, are you really God? And he says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh, now, if you've read the whole chapter and you get to this point, you're, you're ready for Jesus to be like, how dare you? You know, like uh, to, to throw his weight around a little bit. 
and uh, maybe even strike him dead right on the spot. Like, this is just too much. It's crossed the line. And uh, instead, Jesus tells a short parable, the parable we have tonight. In verse 41, Jesus begins by setting the scenario. Here's what he tells him. There was once a moneylender with two folks who owed him money, who were in debt to him. One who owed 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half's worth of wages. Uh, I mean, we maybe peg it at like $60,000 today. And one who owed just 50 denarii, uh, or a couple months worth of wages, like, you know, 6000 or $5,000 today. And in verse 42, we actually get to the climax of the parable, right? So he tells, it's a very short parable, and he says there's a moneylender, two people who owe money, one person owns a big debt, and the other one a little one. And then he says this, uh, neither of these debtors can pay it. Or he just assumes it. Neither of these debtors can pay it. Now, you could breeze past this point, but you miss something that Jesus assumes about the human condition. This is it. The figure in this parable is, a, is the moneylender. The debt is sin. And it's hard to mistake these two debtors. Uh, these two debtors in the parable, given the context that he's teaching in, Simon, a religiously zealous and pious Pharisee, is the real epitome of someone who seemingly has a small amount of sin. And the woman, you know, however, is a notorious sinner. Uh, she's racked up quite the debt of sin toward God. But there's this point that's intrinsic to Jesus' parable here. They both can't pay their debt. Neither of them can pay their debt. Simon, nor the woman, is perfect. And any good that they do cannot erase the debt they've incurred toward God uh, due to their sin. And this brings us to our first answer to our question, what is our identity? Well, primarily, uh, we're debtors. We're debtors. Uh, The reason Simon feels that he can look down upon this woman is because he thinks he's above her. Uh, He thinks he somehow has some sort of, because he has less sin. And here's the crazy thing is, he does have less sin than this woman. Right? Even the parable assumes that this guy is not as bad of a sinner as this woman. He has a little debt and she has a big debt. Um, there's some idea that he hasn't quite rebelled to the point that this woman has. And yet, uh, before the perfection of God, before the honest to goodness, like uh, just complete and total holiness that God is, his otherliness, uh, they are in this exact same boat. Um, even though Simon's sin is not as public as the woman, he still has it. And he's clinging to this reputation that he ultimately cannot earn, that he's somehow perfect or better. Uh, have you guys ever, uh, to make this point, have you guys ever uh, been to like a beach house or uh, any place where it has sand uh, and it has a pool there at the same time? If you've been to a summer conference, uh, you know that this is a thing that happens uh, they're almost always, if you're at a beach or a hotel or anything like that that's on a beach, uh, there's almost always a sign near the pools that says, like, you need to shower before you get in the pool. The reason that is is because uh, sand, if it gets into your filter, actually doesn't, like, get filtered out, and it can get stuck and is actually very corrosive to a pool's filtration system, uh, PSA. Um, and then uh, the other thing, the other reason that it's there is because it's also very hard to vacuum out sand out of the Uh, bottom of the pool. And so it doesn't matter uh, whether you took two steps on the beach and then you came right back, or if if you ran in the ocean and played around for 10 hours, uh, you'll see the same sign posted to either person, you need to take a shower and wash the sand off before you get in the pool. Uh, It's kind of the same way with God, right? 
It doesn't matter if you've run into the ocean and flailed around for 10 hours um, or if you just took two steps in the sand. If you have sand on you, you can't get in the pool. If you have sin in your life, you cannot be with God. Uh, this, he's perfect. He's holy. He cannot stand the presence of sin. And so uh, the reality is we're all in this, uh, we're all in this boat together of having sand on us, some of us more than others, and yet it doesn't matter. You are in the exact same, but nobody is ahead or behind anybody else in the reality of it because before God, we are all covered in sand. Uh, and that's the immense challenge that Jesus is making to all of us. It doesn't matter if you've, you know, you could have grown up in the church. Uh, you could lead two Bible studies. You could be a worship leader at your local church. Uh, you could have... Um, never been to a party, uh, never um, made less than an A on any report you've ever done. Uh, you could have all the respect of your peers, professors. You could do everything you think is right. You could have anything on your resume, and yet, at the end of the day, you like, cannot stand before God on your own like, righteousness. That's what this is saying is that both of them had a debt they couldn't pay. And also, it doesn't matter if you're the worst person you know. Uh, you could commit all sorts of sin. You could, be, you could hook up every night, uh, sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, binge drink, smoke weed, and whatever your life takes you. And this passage is saying that, cannot, uh, that you are just as in debt as somebody else. That that doesn't change your position before God because you cannot earn your status with him. Okay, so that's the bad news. Uh, we're all debtors in a relationship with God, and, and Jesus just assumes that's the relationship. And uh, you might stop there and be like, well, that's a very, uh, uh, it's a huge downer, Nick. But the parable doesn't end there, right? He, he, it's just what he's assuming in the situation. We still need to find out what will happen to these two debtors who cannot pay their debt. Look back at verse 42. Uh, look at it with me. It says, when they could not pay, he, the moneylender, canceled the debt of both. Uh, this is the glorious scandal and the, the glorious truth of God's grace. In a reflection of the moneylender, Jesus turns to this woman later in verse 48 and declares to her that her sins are forgiven. Uh, her debt is paid. In fact, so deep is the forgiveness that this woman receives that in verse 50, Jesus will say to her, your faith has saved you. Um, uh, but that word actually can be translated a couple different ways uh, in the Greek. Um, in chapter 19 of Luke, um, he's actually going to heal a man who's blind. And he's going to say the exact same phrase in the Greek, your faith has saved you. Or uh, that word saved can be translated, uh, your faith has made you whole or made you well. It's made you, and, and most of your translations actually will, will differentiate. Even though it's the exact same phrase in Greek, they'll say when the blind man gets healed, uh, they'll say your faith has made you well. Um, and this one, it's your faith has saved you, but it's the same phrase. The idea there being that uh, she has actually been completely and totally healed. She's been made whole. She's not the woman she was when she entered into Simon's house. Uh, she's given a new identity. She's clean and spotless before God. Uh, and, and this, as we hear that, it would be like, wait, so she enters this house and just because Jesus said, like, Jesus offers this woman forgiveness. He just says, you're forgiven. And of course, you know, at the end of the parable in verse uh, 50, um, everyone is asking 
Jesus like, who is this man who can forgive sins, right? Or I think it's 49. Uh, who is this person who can forgive sins? Um, and of course, it's only God. That's the answer. Uh, and also, in the same process, how, how can God do that? How can Jesus just forgive a sin like that? Um, well, first, uh, he can't. Uh, he can't just overlook sin. It needs to be judged. Um, and some of us hate the idea of judgment. We're like, if God was really a good, good God, he wouldn't send people to hell or he wouldn't have them be judged. And the reality is that like, um, we think that until someone has committed grievous sin and then we're like, well, except for that, that needs to be judged, right? Um, and really uh, the, the curve kind of like the bell curve of what actually needs to be judged is skewed just so like what actually affects us. So it's like as soon as somebody like, uh, hits, uh, does a hit and run against our car in a Metro Market parking lot. Not that that's ever happened to us. Uh, maybe it did. Um, we think, like, that person needs judgment. Like, that person deserves to be, like, the police need to find that person. They can't just get off scot-free. We think that people need judgment when it affects us. Um, we think that people need judgment when they do horrible things like murder people. Um, and so that means God has to be, if God is going to be good to us, and to everyone, he's got to judge sin. He's got to make it right in the end. Um, and if that's true, how is he going to do it? Um, because here's the thing. If he can't just overlook sin, neither also can this moneylender just keep doing business as normal. Right? Think about it like this. If you were a moneylender, you are in charge of literally giving people loans of some amount uh, to do projects and things, and somebody doesn't pay you back. You can't just keep lending people money like you were before. Your business has now hemorrhaged $60,000 in one go, right? Or it's hemorrhaged $6,000 in one go. Either way, something has got to happen to your business. You've got to change your spreadsheets. You've got to absorb that debt. Uh, that's the way it works here. Um, Jesus can promise this woman that she has a new identity because it's the one he possesses given to her. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is going to put it like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What's our identity? Uh, our second answer tonight is that we're died for. I know that doesn't actually, uh, that's not a complete sentence, um, but we're going to do it anyways. Uh, grammatically correct sentence. Uh, we're debtors and we're died for. Uh, we're debtors and we're died for. Uh, and this means uh, that your identity is, if you place your faith in Jesus, it's entirely determined by Jesus, right? If you really see yourself in this position, that you were a debtor and that now you have, uh, that Jesus has actually taken on that debt for you, that he's taken on your sin and given you his righteousness, this means that our identity um, is entirely shaped by that. We can receive it by faith. Um, and here's another thing, you can't lose this. Right? If someone cancels your debt, right? think about this moneylender. If someone cancels your debt, you can't lose the, the forgiveness that he gave you. You can't lose that debt. That money is once and finally for all uh, white, clean. Um, and uh, when you place your trust in Jesus, uh, all your life is given to him in this way. Um, you cannot gain it for yourself. You can't make the moneylender cancel your debt, but neither can you lose that. Um, but uh, I know as I talk about some of these things, um, you might say, 
Nick, you don't know, uh, you don't know how bad I've been, though. Uh, you, you don't know what it's like for me. Um, yeah, I believe this. I've, try, I've been trying to believe this, but like, I think I probably, I think I've sinned one too many times. I think I've probably, you know, if, if uh, yeah, I know that I need him, but at the same time, like Nick, I, I said that I needed him and I said that I would believe this stuff and then I don't. Over and over again, I find myself posturing toward other people or uh, gossiping or um, looking at pornography or whatever it is for you. I don't know what it is that you keep going back to you. Um, and, and that makes you say like, yeah, he would forgive that woman, um, but he doesn't know that like even after he forgave me, I just keep turning back to this thing. Uh, well, let's keep reading and figure out uh, what, we, what we might um, say to such an objection. Uh, look with me at the end of verse 42. Jesus uh, concludes the parable with a question posed to Simon. Now, which of them will love him more? Right? Which of these two debtors, uh, the one who owned who owed 50 denarii or the one who owed 500, will love this moneylender more if he cancels their debt? Again, you can almost hear Simon sheepishly answer in verse 43. He's like almost unwilling to say the truth. The one... I suppose, <laughs> for whom he canceled the larger debt. He did, like, it's like ash on his mouth as he says it. Uh, and Jesus affirms Simon's answer. And as if it, this was not enough, he asked Simon another question. In verse 44, look at it. Uh, please look, look, look at this one. This is good. I want us to all feel uh, the weight of this moment. You're looking at verse 44? I got you. Okay. Jesus turns to this woman without looking at Simon anymore. And you can almost see the smile on his face beaming with pride. He asked Simon, do you see this woman? Right? He's not looking at Simon anymore. He's looking at this woman and he says, do you see this woman? Now, Jesus knows the answer. He knows whether or not Simon has seen this woman. He, remember, this whole parable was started by Simon seeing this woman. Uh, he's not actually asking the question, like, do you see that she's physically here? He's, at, he's asking it because he hasn't really seen her. Not really, not like Jesus has. Uh, look at verses 44 through 47. Jesus tells us what he sees when he looks at this woman. Uh, I'm going to read it again. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment, which is a huge uh, like a huge, like almost waste, a different time in a different gospel in a different situation. Uh, there is a, a different woman who will come and will actually break a whole jar on Jesus's feet. And everyone will in an uproar say, this is ridiculous. She could have given that to the poor and it's just like going on his feet. They're going to get dirty again. This doesn't make any sense. And yet he says, she hasn't, uh, she anointed my feet with ointment. And then Jesus caps it off with, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He's just looking at this girl the whole time, telling, it, telling her this. Um, speaking to Simon, but really saying this to her, right? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he, is, he who is forgiven little loves little. She loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. And she's no longer concerned with any identity any man could ever pin on her. She's beyond such things. And Simon... Like, feel the contrast of this as, as Jesus talks to Simon but won't even look at him anymore. Um, 
he's enslaved to his own self-righteousness, right? Um, and because of this, he cannot love Jesus. Uh, to quote the end of verse 47 in the judgment that Jesus pronounces on Simon, he's forgiven little and he loves little. This brings us to our final answer for the evening to our question, what is our identity? We're devoted to God. And particularly, we're, we're as devoted to God as we're able to see our own sin. Let me say that again. You're as devoted to God as you're able to see your own sin. And that, uh, that means that we are debtors, we're died for, and we're devoted to God. Uh, if you're here tonight and you believe, you're one of those people that I mentioned earlier that believed you messed up too many times, hear this good news uh, that like, um, the, the depth of your sin that you are coming to understand is actually making you more and more, it's supposed to make you more and more in love with Christ. Um, and you think that Jesus, he didn't know before, when he offered me grace before, he didn't know that I would be a screw-up, uh, that I would continue to just love my sin. Um, I, I want to say this, you, you got it all wrong. You've got it all backwards. Uh, Jesus knew the depth of your sin. Jesus knows all the sins you're going to commit. Um, and he died for it. It's, it's already paid for, right? That's why he can tell this woman, she's not done living her life, right? But he can tell this woman, your sins are forgiven. Uh, the reality is, it's not that Jesus is learning more about your sin, it's that you are, right? It's that you are, are learning how pervasive your sin is for you. Uh, and you are learning what it looks like to actually cling to Jesus, uh, to run to him, to be loved by him, to bring your own alabaster jar and anoint Jesus' feet, to cry tears at his feet because of how beautiful and good he is. Uh, like this woman, your sin is supposed to be fuel for your devotion to him. Uh, that as you see your unrighteousness before him, you grasp how good and loving he is and the cross gets bigger. The price that he paid gets bigger. Um, and the, the reality is on the, on the flip side, if you're here tonight and you don't really see your need for Jesus, you don't really see that you're like, why would this woman do this? Uh, you know, this, the Bible and God's word is full of stuff that I don't want to listen to. Um, I don't want to have to do that. I don't, I, it's backwards or regressive, or I don't know what, what your, your, your objection is to Jesus's lordship. But, um, if you're one of those people um, you have to ask yourself, are you like Simon in this sense that you are inwardly wasting away while outwardly you've projected a good image? Uh, do you feel like you always have to measure up um, and be concerned with being the best, maybe even being the best worship leader or athlete or the brightest engineer or whatever? Are you so bound up with your identity in one of those things that if anyone even remotely challenges it, that you find yourself devastated? Um, do you fight anyone who threatens your position? Uh, that's got to be exhausting. Um, and, and the invitation that you're made here is you can let go of that. You can let go of that status and you can embrace Jesus. Um, there's a, I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. Uh, I hope that you have because it's great. Uh, Toy Story 3. Um, it's maybe the third best Toy Story, but it's still good. Um, I, I liked it a lot. There's this scene where all the toys, right, where Woody and Buzz and all these toys are, are considering just giving up. Uh, they, they've wandered far from home, and they're at this daycare uh, where a bunch of kids are playing with toys and stuff, and they're like, we should stay here. This would be great. Uh, we'll just stay at this daycare center. 
And Woody is arguing with all of them, like, no, we got to go back to Andy. You guys can't just, like, leave him. You can't just abandon our post or whatever. It, he, this, is, this is his big argument. Um, and one final desperate plea, he says, Buzz, look under your boot. Look at what's written under there. Um, and that's, uh, if you've seen the movie, you know that, like, Andy always takes under every toy that he gets under their feet. He'll write his name, Andy. Um, they're Andy's toys, and here's what, here's what uh, is implicit in Woody's argument. Um, that's the truest thing about them. Uh, who they are is derived from whose they are. That uh, the, the fact that they are Andy's toys that is, is all the identity that they need. It's, it tells them their purpose in life. It tells them uh, where they should be, how they should behave, uh, what their sense of worth is. Uh, they know they're worth everything to Andy. Um, and he's put their name on them. Here's the reality, guys. If you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, his name is written on your, your foot, right? His name is placed on you. You are his. That is your identity. Uh, to the extent that we see our need for this, to the extent that we see ourselves as needing this identity, as, as being given uh, this identity to us, um, that is what's going to motivate our love for him and our neighbor. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord,